This is Don Bettinelli, the CEO of SQPN, with a brief but very important message. For more than a decade, SQPN has produced the Catholic faith and pop culture podcasts that you love. We're a nonprofit organization, so it's only your generosity that lets us carry out our mission. We haven't run a fundraiser in two years, and that's why we need to ask for your help right now. Please make a pledge of whatever amount you can afford to help us continue providing your favorite podcasts, as well as exciting new ones we have planned. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. Thank you for your generosity. May we hear from you today? You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, Episode 21. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Thank you, Sal. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we will discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the second original series pilot, uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? So uh, I said the second original pilot. Of course, um, re- uh, was it last time or tw- two weeks ago? I forget where it is now. I'm, I've lost track of time. But we discussed the cage. I think it was last week. We discussed the cage, which was the first original uh, series <laughs> pilot, and and nor- normally they didn't get a second, but they thought the cage was too cerebral, so they said, "Ah, eh, why don't you make another one? We'll throw more money at you." Right. Uh, right. And so now we're going to talk about that second one, and a lot happened in between those two. So this was um, the, one important thing to note about this this episode, just to, like right off the bat, is. Um, it was the second pilot, but it wasn't one of the first two episodes aired Mm-mm. of the series. In fact, it was the third episode. It aired September 22nd, 1966. Um, and it was the third episode aired, which would have been, for people watching at the time, would have been very confusing. Uh, because it was a different, the ship looked different. There was different, like on the sets, where, like the, the bridge had some different stuff, different uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you know and the different crew like when yep. the first two episodes aired, Mr. Spock was the first officer, and then suddenly there's this one, and then there's Gary Mitchell's the first. So I I can imagine how confusing it would have been, it's especially in the time before social media and all that other ways for fans to get information. You'd, I guess you must have just been used to stuff being weird like that. Yeah, well, you could have always assumed this is an alternate universe or something this week. <laughs> yeah, I don't cool. I don't know if that was quite in the uh the lingo at the time, but <laughs> no. They not only in rarefied circles, but uh yeah, they it would have been weird and TV execs just didn't care too much. They had hours to fill. The, exactly. And the one of the reasons they did that was is they they saw uh they they aired Man Trap and Charlie X before this one. Yeah. Um because and there were 
and, Go ahead. and there was controversy about that behind the scenes because Mantrap, was, which is the salt vampire episode, um, was not meant to be the premiere episode, but the network, like, we want a monster to, to go out the gate with. So right. that was the first monster they had. Right. And, and, and again, they thought that this second pilot was still a little too wordy and expository, uh, which is just, you know, TV execs. Uh, um, and, so, and I don't think they've changed. That's the problem. Right. Exactly. They're still too. Well, now yeah. they have all kinds of other stupid requirements of TV shows, but, uh, so anyway, so one of the interesting things I found out was that after they rejected the cage, uh, Desilu Studios and Roddenberry offered three possible scripts for the second pilot, which was mm-hmm. this one, Omega Glory, and Mud's, yeah. Mud's Women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> interestingly enough, the Omega Glory and Mud's Women were written by Roddenberry. This yeah. one was the one that was not written by Roddenberry. Um, and this is this. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best of the three because Mud's Woman is actually pretty good, but Omega Glory is terrible. Yeah. And but each one of these like kind of displays Gene Roddenberry's proclivities um, mm. because in in this one we have another Man Against God story, right? Which mm, is one of Roddenberry's sure. recurring themes. In Mud's Women, it's the Space Hookers episode, and so it's Gene Roddenberry's sexual <laughs> fantasies. And then Omega Glory is Gene Roddenberry gets to speechify about the good of mankind, because that's the one where they find the planet where uh, it's a parallel world, and they have an American flag, and right. the, with with the chi- the the comms, the Chinese communists have taken over America, and it's a it's a weird political allegory. I think that's wasn't that Man in the High Castle? Oh, never mind. That's a different yeah, similar <laughs> one. <laughs> so uh, the other interesting behind the scenes, you know, sort of uh, prelude to us discussing the actual episode is that William Shatner was the third choice for Kirk, and that they first considered Jack Lord from Hawaii Five O and and the actor Lloyd Bridges, who has done a lot of different things. Hmm. Uh, wasn't he? Um, 20, uh, Journey, Journey Beneath the Sea. Journey Beneath the Sea, yeah. Sequest, whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That So uh, so uh, he had, you know, so he had um, proven uh, ability in this genre, which is, it's a similar enough genre. Um, and Jack Lord was, you know, just, you know, Jack Lord. Uh, but very interesting book, choice. Book him Spock. What's that? Yeah, book him Spock. Book him yeah, Spock. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, for all of Shatner's uh, flaws, which you know he's he's not the he's not he's not the world's greatest actor. I think as as Kirk, I think he, almost he, everyone agrees he's 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 good. He's Kirk. Yeah, he is, and he had mm-hmm. a he had a a uh, history in sci fi too. He appeared in several Twilight Zones and things right, like that. Right. Um, also other people connected with Star Trek had worked with Roddenberry before in his first series that he produced the Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first officer in this Gary Mitchell is played by Gary Lockwood, who was the Lieutenant. He was the star of Roddenberry's previous show that got canceled due to Roddenberry being a jerk. Um, which is also what would happen to Star Trek. Yep. Uh, also Majel Barrett, and Leonard Nimoy mm-hmm. and and uh, Nichelle Nichols were all in uh, the Lieutenant as well. So a lot of them came on over to Star Trek after that series. And there's even I've seen a clip of an episode of the Lieutenant that has Gary Lockwood 
and Majel Barrett and Leonard Nimoy all in the same scene where Leonard Nimoy is playing this kind of fast talking agent in a hotel room, <laughs> making, making deals over the telephone. That's great. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Leonard Nimoy was in uh, Mission Impossible, the series, too, right? He, he did after some of Star Trek. After, after Star, Star Trek. Trek. Okay, right. so I was trying to get the, the order of that right. Uh, so speaking of the cast, uh, two, a couple of cast members that we that will be in the final final cast are not here yet. Um, yeah. No, no, Nichelle Nichols yet. Yuhura. Uh, mm -hmm. um, no, DeForest Kelly. And no, DeForest Kelly. There's uh, Doctor Piper, another and the, older guy. And I was going to comment on yeah. that. You know, the, the the doctor, he must have had something where he wanted an older doctor, because yeah. you know both pilots it had an older doctor. And I don't know if he picked a Forrest Kelly because he looks older than he is or well, what. But. In, in fact, DeForest Kelly was his first choice, like from the first mm. pilot and had been overruled twice. And so they ended up getting these two other guys. And finally, they gave in and they said, OK, OK, you can have DeForest Kelly. And, you know, it turns out <laughs> he, he was, was a right. Breakout character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so. It was the most interesting too. Sulu was a section chief. He wasn't the yeah. helmsman. He was an astrophysicist. Know, what, a, what a demotion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did he do to get that? I'm busting you back to KP. I mean, you know, something must have happened. Exactly. Well, it's funny in a lot of the uh, extra material, like the books and the other things like that, because, you know, they want to reconcile all the all the problems in the various oh, things. Oh, yeah. They've and that's talked your about area, that. Dom. Uh -huh. That is my area, yes. Uh, but they've talked about uh, you know, they, they reconciled Sulu's career as he was um, a scientist originally and, and ended up deciding he wanted to get into command, the command track, and had to take uh, a, that sort of a semi-demotion or, or at best a lateral move into the mm. command uh, department. And that meant he had to be a helmsman. Um, hey, hey, it worked for me. I ended up becoming captain of the, uh, of the Excelsior. So, you know, exactly. That seemed to be a good career move. Got to get that red red shirt on if you want to, or gold shirt on if you want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Want to rise. Speaking of red shirts, there was no red shirts. There are no red shirts yet. Yes, uh, we have blue shirts and we have uh, gold shirts and some kind of beige shirt, which is not the all that different. Or, or it could be just the fabric. <laughs> it's supposed to be gold, but uh, but look beige. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm glad they they went for red uh, eventually. So, and that's actually a good point. We're still not in the final uniforms uh, yet. It was, we still get this sweater type of uh, uniform mm -hmm. shirt. Yeah, um, velour looking stuff. Yeah, not quite as heavy as in uh, the, the cage, but uh, mm -hmm. we're getting there. And uh, they'll so they'll they're still working out the uniforms. It's well, it is it is it is interesting though that there's there is so much that's recognizable for the rest of the series. But yet there are things like the uniforms and some of the sets, yeah. like you notice there, you know, the hallway in the original pilot, you know, had kind of more of a V-shaped ceiling. Right. And you see one place where the, one of those ceilings or those arches show up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the in this pilot. They've they've also redone the bridge a little bit, whereas before it seemed like almost everybody had a Luxo lamp monitor sitting mm -hmm. on their station. Now only Kirk does coming out of the command chair. Yeah. And then that'll yep. uh, go away soon. Uh, yeah. The other thing I noticed about the sets is um, they went they they had color schemes like they had much more color in this mm -hmm. pilot than they will eventually have in the production, which is interesting that they get rid of the color, which I wonder if that has to do more with the. Uh, the transition in technology at the time from black and white to color TV 
you know, while, mm. they, while it was highly touted as, you know, in color, living color or technicolor, whatever the, the NBC thing was, um, that's a lot of people still had black and white TVs and maybe the colors right. didn't come across very well. <clears throat> By any chance, Dom, were you watching the uh, remastered edition of this episode? Because they've pumped up the color in a lot of the remastered episodes. Yes. Oh, really? Okay, yes. I was watching uh, the Netflix. Uh, version, yeah, if, if, has, if, like mm-hmm. if you if the outside scenes of the ship look CGI, because yes. they are, they're the remastered CGI. Yeah, I mean, the the, uh, the exterior special effects were, were, were much more modern, much better. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. in the original, were the, were the, the rooms, did the rooms have color schemes? Like, was Sick Bay green? Yeah, they, they were, but it didn't come across as well on film or television um, as, as it would today. Right. Uh, it, it Actually, there was a... Um, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but the lighting director was considered revolutionary at the time for what he did, because we all have memories growing up of seeing Star Trek with those purples and blues and greens mm-hmm. in the background. Yeah. And that was all that was just Star Trek. Nothing else did that. Um, this one guy had the idea because he was trying to go for a cinematic level Mm. of color saturation and on a tv budget the only way he had to do it was use these color gel sheets over over big lights okay and and that was how they did the alien planet atmospheres and the walls of different ships and buildings and it it was a way of a kind of low budget way of trying to achieve high level color saturation and which would be extremely Extremely difficult because the, you know, the NTSC color standard at the time, you know, the, the broadcast color standard at the time. Yes, it was in color, but it wasn't by much. I mean, compared <laughs> to, what, again, what we're used to, you know, we, we t- I mentioned this with uh, when we talked about the, the animated series where, you know, there are certain things that we can see now because of our high definition, high quality TVs. Well, color is one of those things, you know, the color capabilities of our modern 21st century flat panels is light years, pun intended, intended. of um, from what those TVs back in the 60s could produce. I mean, it was still revolutionary for the time, the color that they could produce. But we would look at them today and they would look very muted, very blah, almost like this is this is just a step above black and white because it frankly was right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's true. So uh, speaking of the special effects, I just want to bring up one other uh, element, element from behind the scenes is um, apparently uh, the special effects on these two pilots uh, caused the head of the special effects company they were using, Howard Anderson Company, uh, caused him to have three nervous breakdowns. <laughs> the, <laughs> the poor guy, Daryl Anderson, there's a story that's told that, uh, you know, the stress of trying to bring these a new opticals in on time and on budget um, just like drove him nuts. He, they, in fact, when at one point uh, Bob Justman and, uh, and Gene Roddenberry, you know, went to the, the, the company said, Hey, how's it going? You know, we need the title, the new title sequence soon. And the guy kind of just jumped to his feet screaming, you'll never make your first air date. And he burst into tears and ran out of the room screaming. Whoa. <laughs> and the poor guy, they had to like, they sent him over like to Palm Springs for like a rest and recuperation period. Uh, and and wow. then they, and they composed the title sequence from stuff that they'd already shot. Uh, so, but the, like it, this was, so, I mean, what it tells you is the special effects were so cutting edge that it yeah, was, right. it was really driving these guys to the edge. 
And and this one has a lot of special effects. We've got mm. the reversed out weirdness when when Dr. Daner and B- Gary Mitchell are zapping each other. We've got the phaser rifle. We've got the energy barrier mm-hmm. at the edge of the galaxy. We've got all these spaceships and planet shots for the first time. Yeah, so yeah. there's lots of stuff going on. It was very heavy on, on all of that stuff. So, yeah. So let's and, start- I- go ahead. I was going to say, just on a more practical level, though, you you, you talked about the practical effects. Those the uh, tinfoil contacts could not have been comfortable. Oh, oh I yeah. Well, I, I I have a feeling that um, Gary Lockwood couldn't see anything. Like they were like, I, I have a feeling that they blinded him. There were well, there, were, there was. You, if you look closely, you look closely. There are little pinpricks, little okay. cutouts, so yeah. they could see, but they'd only see like you know this little tiny perspective because yeah. he kind of looked around as if he couldn't really see much or anything um which actually helped the with making it seem him seem mm-hmm. weird and Alien. otherworldly yeah so yeah. for for people who don't know what we're talking about and when the ship leaves that starts to leave the galaxy they go through an energy barrier that causes people with psychic powers to develop godlike psychic powers and also makes their eyes silver yeah yeah well so they had well, yeah, um, yeah, we could talk about the, the 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 premise, which is that the Enterprise is heading toward the edge of the galaxy, and there's apparently some kind of galactic barrier, which right. which never it comes up again. I think in yeah. in original series it does, and then kind of I think it comes up in next gen, but gets explained away as a local phenomenon as opposed to something that surrounds the entire galaxy because. There is no actual barrier at the edge of our galaxy. Well, so far as we know, and presumably not, and we don't see them around other galaxies. So this is just a bit of if imagination. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. But there's this big pink ribbon around the edge of the galaxy that the Enterprise Enterprise is flying towards. And it's like, why don't you just fly over it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Or under it, you know, for that matter. Also, this is this is kind of striking, given and a little inconsistent with what we later learn about the the geography of the Star Trek galaxy or the astrography of the Star Trek galaxy, because they're only ten. Uh, they're only a few. I mean, they they go right up to the edge of the galaxy to go through this barrier. Well, our galaxy is like a hundred thousand light years wide. We're 20,000 light years from the center, and that means the whole thing is, uh, you know, the radius of the galaxy is like 50,000 light years. We're 20,000 mm-hmm. from the center. That means they've traveled 30,000 light years from Earth right, right, to and get to this barrier, which is farther than to the center of the galaxy. And, right. and we, if, that's just way off scale from what they later establish. Yeah. If there's one thing that Star Trek has been really bad at through every series and every movie mm-hmm. is time and distance, the time it takes to travel distances. Um, and exactly. the, the one series that really makes a big deal out of it is, of course, Voyager. We've got right. we've got to travel. What was it? Seventy five thousand light years. And, and it'll take us 70 years or something like that. So, yeah, we've get this. Yeah. We get this. OK, so a ship traveling, you know, at, at maximum cruising speed, not necessarily maximum speed, maximum cruising speed can maybe travel a thousand light years a, uh, a year. But then we, we get things like, you know, people traveling from Bajor to Earth in a couple of days. And, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. and then the, and the, and then the JJ Abrams reboot where we're, we're bopping around the galaxy in a, in a couple hours, you know, they're, yeah, they blink an eye and they're there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, that's, 
as someone who's really into the like I'm almost obsessive about the technology details. It's just from mm-hmm. my childhood. It really almost. Almost. Uh, <laughs> it really <laughs> drove me nuts. Uh, it still does actually, I'll be honest. It drives me nuts when they when they don't when they're not consistent. Like that's yeah. at least be I consistent. Have to, 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 to go to the edge of the galaxy and back, this the opening narration should have said, you know, uh, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's 65-year mission. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Except you know, there is no opening narration yet. Yes. That's, 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 you get no just music over the credits, and only Shatner and Nimoy are listed. Right. You know, it, that, that's one nice thing, at least, you know, of course, we do Secrets of Doctor Who. At least with Doctor Who, they just kind of go wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. It's, you know, wave a hand at it, and it's gone. And it's right. just that's a part of the – Part of the show, it's the, expected. The way they establish the technology is that they tr- they can travel nearly instantaneously any t- to any time or place, and that's and if we'd done that with Star Trek, that would have been better. But they, yeah. but they, and even in, within this episode, they talked about our 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 warp engines are out. It's going to take us decades to get home. Okay, right, yeah, I, I get that. All right, I mean, even then, that we're that's not. It's kind of ridiculous because if you're traveling below the the speed of light, you, it's it is, not decades; it's generations. It is the risk, though, with the, with with science fiction like this. You know, they didn't plan on Star Trek being a fifty plus year, yes, you know, world that it was going to be this series that was going to hopefully run for a few years and make lots of money and everybody would enjoy Fine. it and you know and and they'd be right. happy and that would be it. Well, and they go on to another series right. to 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 you know to to the, in their defense, I have to point you know they don't actually say in this episode how fast the ship can travel. I mean, there, there's nothing has been established how mm-hmm. that maybe warp speed means you can go a thousand, you know, uh, light years in a day. I mean, it just, it's never been established. So they, they, they didn't think of that ahead of time. And like you said, they didn't plan out that we'd have to do this for, you know, decades. <laughs> so we should be really strict about it. I, I get that. It's just me being, you know, annoying fan. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk plot. Yes. Um, in this episode, it starts just the way the previous pilot started with them hunting for a lost ship. It's like, a, mm-hmm. wow, another lost ship premise. The right. first one had crashed on a planet. This one had gone beyond the edge of the galaxy. This one was two centuries ago. It was called the Valiant. And they beam aboard what's essentially its black box to right. find out what happened to it. But before that, we get a scene with Kirk and Spock playing 3D chess. And uh, Spock thinks he's got Kirk cornered, and then Kirk pulls a surprise move and upsets Spock. And um, and we have some interesting background on Spock. Uh, at one point, Kirk says, before he pulls a surprise move, you play a very irritating game of chess, Mr. Spock. And, and Spock says, irritating? Ah, yes, one of your earth emotions. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently there are, there are emotions that are unique to earth. <laughs> yeah, and well, and also, but apparently not all emotions are unique to earth because smugness and happiness and self-satisfaction are apparently <laughs> yeah. Vulcan emotions, as exactly. he says that. I know, he gets this little smile on his face as he says it. Uh, it was yeah. really funny. And, <laughs> and and then when uh, when Kirk pulls the surprise move, he uh, he he says, you still don't know what irritation is, Mr. Spock. And Mr. Spock says the fact that one of my ancestors married a human female and then he gets cut off. Yeah. And and so notice. Uh, so they're establishing Spock is has mixed racial heritage. 
but it's just one of my ancestors. It's not exactly. mom at this point. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good uh, point. Uh, I liked uh, Kirk's so, response, by the way. Terrible having bad blood like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, apparently either they hadn't decided on it being Spock's mother yet, although they will very quickly uh, mm-hmm. in the next couple of episodes. Yeah. Um, or honor your father and mother is not one of the Ten Commandments on Vulcan because he would be totally dissing his mom as just one of my ancestors. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, uh, and as was established, Spock is not uh, the first officer at this at this point. Uh, in fact, science yeah, officer, yeah, uh, yes, he's science officer. And Gary Mitchell, uh, who is apparently navigator, is uh, the first officer, and he's a friend of Kirk's going way back. And he's sort of much, very much like Will Riker will be in Next Gen. He's sort of uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a bit of a ladies' man, uh, a a funny guy, you know, friendly jokes. That sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. He he also um, he also like as part of the ladies' man kind of thing. At one point, after they introduced the Doctor Daner character, he's like walking freezer unit. Yeah, that exactly. was uncomfortable. Yeah. That's that's sort yeah. of uncomfortable to me to, to, to see that today. Uh, it's a different times have changed a lot. <laughs> um, and they're uh, on the, so on the bridge. Uh, I get it. Like, what am I? Another one of my pet peeves is the tendency in all science fiction TV shows and movies for people in the scene to state obvious things. Put the screen on. The captain says, <laughs> "Screen on, sir." Like, okay, I, oh, I yeah, can you see get, that. Get Spock, get Spock marking orders again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I can see that the screen is on. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. So, um, so they uh, they 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 call all the department heads to the. Uh, to the bridge uh, as in preparation for this crossing the barrier. Um, and then there, there's this, this discussion about ESP um, mm-hmm. and right. extrasensory perception as, right. a, so we, as a we serious science. Yeah. We should mention that this is the point at which uh, Dr. Mark Piper, the head of life sciences introduces mm-hmm. Dr. Elizabeth Daner who he says her specialty is psychiatry, and she's here because she's doing a study on crew reactions in emergencies. Mm -hmm. Right. And so she's not like a regularly assigned to the ship. She's here for Mm -hmm. that particular purpose. And um, so I guess they're already anticipating trouble. Yeah. That this is going to be an emergency with leaving the galaxy. Yeah. But Spock starts processing the tapes from the black box from the mm-hmm. Valiant and discovers that the captain of the Valiant, after they crossed the barrier, was having like frantic Google searches for ESP and <laughs> human beings. And um, so, you know, looking at his search history, they're wondering what that can all mean. Right. Right. And as they go through the barrier, we see... Uh, Daner and Mitchell both get zapped in a special way that other people aren't. And it later emerges that Dr. Daner is, has an ESP rating as we, they don't say this on screen. They don't say it out loud, but we see it in her like Pika typewriter type. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. On the screen. That someone took a picture of and put in the uh, database. (laughs) Yeah. Um, She's got an ESP rating of 89, which is apparently high. And Mitchell has an ESP rating two points higher at 91. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, and that's why they're able to, to, that's why they get zapped in a special way. 
Um, you're right, Dom. They explain that this is uh, that ESP, although the Kirk doesn't seem to be overly familiar with it. I mean, he knows about it, but and it's treated mm-hmm. as a serious science. Um, and in this episode, in humans, later Vulcan mind melds will become a thing. Right. Right. Um, so and they kind of they kind of hinted something. There would be something more in the future because he says basically, uh, you know, or Spock says something. It's like, well, it, it's there's there's ESP that you don't know about, mm-hmm. you know, or something right. to that extent, you know. So they hint that there could be more in the future. Yeah, in this episode, Daner explains it by saying, it is a fact that some people can sense future happenings, read the backs of playing cards, and so on, but the expert capacity is always quite limited until you cross the barrier at the edge of the galaxy. Um, In view of the fact, though, that they're later going to establish Spock has much more dramatic ESP powers with the Mm -hmm. Vulcan mind meld, it's like he should have been a number one zap guy Um, going through that barrier, and he's not. So it's kind of a plot hole. Why doesn't this affect Spock the way it does Mitchell and and Daner? I mean, I suppose you could say Vulcans probably because their telepathy is as such a part of who they are that they've developed ways to protect themselves from telepathic or extrasensory shock or something along those lines, I suppose. Uh, maybe, uh, or it may just be the fact that Spock's earpiece has a wire connecting <laughs> it to the console in this episode that keeps him grounded. Yes, he barely reads through his ears, uh, so, which is interesting. So, uh, uh, one one thing, real quick, uh, talking talking about Doctor Daner, she was she was played by Sally Kellerman, who is known as Hot Lips Houlihan from Mash. That's, that's what most people know her as. I didn't realize that was her. Wow. She yeah. looks so different from yeah. from the movie, not from the series. No, same actor, oh, same actress. Right? It's not. It's not Loretta Swit. Okay, yeah. Loretta yeah. Swit's the TV one. That that's right. That's right. 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 Yeah. That's why she doesn't look familiar. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Loretta Swit. Yeah. So, um, so I was kind of want to move through the the plot is fairly straightforward, but there are some points mm-hmm. we want to we'll want to bring out. Um, a kind of interesting. So once they go through, um. Uh, Mitchell, you know, nine people die straight out. Mitchell mm-hmm. uh, and Dana are affected, and Mitchell begins to exhibit some effects. Most notably, the physically, uh, his eyes start glowing. They have, they they turn silver essentially. Yep. Um, in one of the fade outs to commercial, they have this uh, where there it's on his eyes, and the last thing to fade out is his glowing eyes, which I just thought was a, a nice effect. Uh, that was mm-hmm. kind of nice. Um, he he also develops the ability to read preternaturally fast and to telekinetically move coffee cups, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and he knows when people are coming in uh, and out of the room before they arrive, um, and then starts to be able to read minds. Um, mm-hmm. At one point, he's um, he's trying to to hit on uh, Doctor Dana again. Uh, Daner, sorry, uh, I, that's my Boston accent coming out. Doctor Daner again, <laughs> and uh, he he recites to her the Nightingale poem. Uh, mm-hmm. Which which from Tarbold, which turns out it was actually written by Gene Roddenberry about mm-hmm. not a woman about his World War II airplane. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> and, and he, but he call, has Mitchell call it one of the most passionate of all love sonnets of all time, which I just think is it's either Sam Peoples uh, putting a dig in on Roddenberry or Roddenberry uh, uh, digging on himself a little bit there. But uh, I just That's thought it was funny. funny. Um, so as we progress, the Everyone gets concerned about the changes in Mitchell. He's becoming a little bit 
you know, megalomaniacal and a little bit uh, concerning. Uh, and Dr. Kellerman is his advocate. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. and in fact, I feel like she's overly familiar and overly emotional about Mitchell. And then also mm. exhibits some sort of Nietzschean eugenics attitudes about improving the species. Very uncomfortable with Dr. Daner uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in this episode here. Um, now, not to be fair, that, that could be the effect of the, the ESP boost yeah. as it's showing up in her. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also other things that like there's a moment where Kirk is talking to Mitchell and all of us and Mitchell gets annoyed and all of a sudden his voice starts to echo. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and Kirk doesn't immediately order tests to find out what's going on with this <laughs> yeah, exactly. echo voice. That's quite a Just tricky kind of answer, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you a ventriloquist of some sort? How do you do yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. uh, and whereas in contrast to Daner, Spock is very cold toward Mitchell. In fact, he's like, um, Kill this guy now! Ba- yeah, basically, exactly. You know, this guy's now a threat. Let's get rid of him. Kill him. Uh, take him. Take him to the nearest airlock. Eject him. We're done with him. Goodbye. <laughs> yes. You know, do not serve on an all Vulcan starship. That's all I'm saying. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that interests me, one of the questions that I have is, is why does Mitchell turn on his friends? Is it a part of his nature coming out, or? Does this ESPA ESP created in him? You know, the, wh- what is that me- turning? Yeah, the and I'm not saying this is psychologically plausible, but it, it's basically what they're doing is the power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely theme. Mm. So now that Gary Mitchell has absolute power, he's become absolutely corrupted, and they imply the same thing will happen to Doctor Daner in time. She's just farther behind on the curve right. than uh, Mitchell is, and so she needs to take him down while she still has self possession. Right. Yeah. So that it's yeah. So it's the idea that power, as someone gets more and more power, they become less uh, compassionate and and less. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean that which may or like you said may or may not actually be true, but is sort of has been borne out in well from, in some episodes from, of history. Yeah, and in in human terms, certainly the more power people are raised with, um, they can come across as you know above everybody else and less concerned. But um but ultimate but from a Christian perspective we'd say actually ultimate power in the true sense is also ultimate love because God is love. Right. Mm-hmm. And and of course that comes up whereas uh, uh Gary Mitchell starts to think of himself as a, a god uh, mm-hmm. right down to the point he where says he says it says it out loud. Yes. Uh, although he ends up offering an apple to Dr. Daner, uh, which is kind of an interesting. Ooh, uh, I yeah. saw what is they he did a God there. or is he the devil? Which <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, Yeah. He offers that is sort of the temptation comes. And in fact, mm-hmm. it was very interesting that the cage had an Adam and an Eve. And, and this episode has an Adam and an Eve that that theme mm-hmm. has repeated in both of these pilots. Again, another rep, you know, uh, echo uh, of something that that seems to be that Gene Roddenberry is going back to in this. Um, so mm-hmm. they, they've put uh, Mitchell on this mining planet, this mining station. They're going to strand him there at this place ships where only, ships only come every 20 years to get dilithium or whatever. Th- that's going to be yeah. one heck of a business plan for that mining company. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, 
that's some long-term planning uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, interesting. And then um, a couple of things that come up, uh, Mitchell says, uh, you know, morals are from men, not gods. Very interesting statement there. Obviously not said in a uh, positive sense, you know, that, that well, we're supposed to say that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. And that's, that's Nietzschean, you know, the idea mm -hmm. that the, the Uberman, the Superman has uh superior morality and is not bound by conventional morals right. that are made by the, by the lower class, the slave mentality to right. rein in the will of the Superman. Without, I, I'm not going to say that Roddenberry is making a uh, a Nazi analogy here, or 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 the, the Nazi, <laughs> uh, because that would, that would be too simplistic. But you know, from a, a standpoint of America of that time, as, as having the, all the people making, all the men at least making these this series are old enough that they probably served in World War II. Uh, mm -hmm. That there there was probably an undercurrent, uh, uh, even just a, a, a subconscious reaction against. Nietzschean thinking, the sort of thing that the Nazis uh, epitomized. Yeah. Uh, now, we should point out Nietzsche was kind of appropriated by the Nazis after his death. Mm -hmm. um, and Nietzsche, and even Nietzsche himself was, scholars will say, was somewhat misrepresented because he, he went crazy and died very young. Yeah. And his sister then published a bunch of notes he had and edited them. And there's always been this controversy about how much of that is actually Nietzsche's thought. And it's, it's, and so even though the Nazis have tarnished Nietzsche beyond what he would otherwise deserve, um, mm. there's always been this question about exactly how much Nietzsche would have gone along with some of the, uh, with the way he was later appropriated. It's good. It's a good, right. good point. It's also interesting. He's not the now. He's not actually mentioned in this episode, even though his thought seems quite present here. The philosopher that is mentioned is Spinoza, uh, Benedict Spinoza, uh, kind of early modern period Jewish philosopher, mm. who Gary Mitchell has been reading and describes as very simple, childlike, really. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you've ever read Spinoza, but. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh no, Father Corey, we got to we got to strand Jimmy on some on a mining station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, a couple other things. Uh, the 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 episode reached its climax with with Kirk having to hit you know, as the captain and as Mitchell's friend. He feels it's his responsibility to take out Mitchell to 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 yeah. remove him as. Uh, the, the the threat uh, he takes it very personally. This is very characteristic of uh, of Captain Kirk that we'll come to see, whereas he takes that responsibility on himself. Um, Even though they could end the problem from orbit using planetary extermination by neutron radiation, right? Which is the phrase mm -hmm. they use, which actually would work. I mean, that's that would kill everything, yes. and. Um, so they could do that, but instead we get a personal confrontation between Kirk and Mitchell. And just like we got to see a laser cannon in the previous pilot, now we get to mm -hmm. see a laser, a phaser rifle. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Spock gets that, he pulls out that phaser rifle and he's got it like, you know, I'm ready yeah, to I, rock and roll. Oh, like I love a, that. I love that. Like Kirk a Tommy gun or something. Yeah. Did you get this that I didn't order? Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. <He saw> <laughs> yeah. Spock walks up. Oh, I got it. I got it here. 
<laughs> we also get the uh, first ripped uniform shirt on uh, on Kirk uh, in this mm-hmm. episode in his fight with Mitchell. Um, uh, the uh, we we have uh, Mitchell with the just like all supervillains has the overly elaborate plan to kill Kirk, where he you know he telekinetically creates a grave with a gravestone. That he's and gonna even though Kirk he's into. known him, <laughs> even though he's known him for fifteen years, he doesn't know Kirk's middle initial because it says James R. Kirk on the tombstone. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> well, the fans have co- have come up with an explanation for that too. It was a uh, it was an in joke between Gary Mitchell and Kirk uh, uh, at the academy. The, the something it's mm. some it was some kind of they came up with some kind of weird nickname for him or something like that. But the, just yeah, very funny. Um, mm. And so it, it was. By not just by for dint of brawn, you know, on Kirk's part, but also by his persuasion of Dr. Daner to mm-hmm. to also to, to reject Gary Mitchell's temptation uh, in in that that temptation in the desert of that planet, if I if I may uh, notice the, notice combine. the reversal in Adam accepted Eve's temptation, and here Eve rejects Adam's temptation. Exactly. Mm. Yes, uh, and is by, by their combination. That they 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 get they drop Gary into the into Kirk's grave and drop the uh, giant rock on him that apparently squishes him that he's not able to stop from falling on him. Uh, yeah, so telekinetically squished like a bug. So mm-hmm. uh, and and then we uh, you know we 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 wrap up the episode like that. I mean that's pretty much quickly. I mean, the, I'm trying to remember if there, if there was anything significant. I didn't write a note about anything mm-hmm. post that one. Even though this this episode explores um, Roddenberry's obsession, which other I mean writers on the show talked about later, um, obsession with taking down God, um, we do have a an interesting line in here at one point uh, that indicates that Gary Mitchell is you know not really God, and which of course is obvious, but um, that. Kirk says at one point, above all, a God needs compassion. Mm. And so there is a recognition on the part of the script that um, that uh, that true divinity is something that's going to involve compassion or that at least needs to. And that what Gary Mitchell has is just a counterfeit. Right. Right. the uh, the episode does end on the bridge. Uh, Something it, it's actually a, a visual that will become a sort of a hallmark of the uh, series, where mm-hmm. the captain is back in his chair giving a, 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 a captain's log, uh, and he notes that Doctor Daner and Gary Mitchell are uh, both lost in the performance of duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he because Mitch Daner dies for no real reason except on the plot level. It's she's like expended herself too much in taking Mitchell down, so she right. dies just as she's giving birth to Luke and Leah or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, sorry, wrong one. And then uh, exactly, but, but uh, so Kirk, you know, wants to emphasize that that they didn't ask for what happened to them. You know that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Spock says. I felt for him too. Sort of bookending the episode from that first scene where he talked about Earth emotions, uh, mm-hmm. and then the end. And then, yeah, D- Daner also had a line in there saying, "I know people from your planet don't have feelings the way we do." Right, and that the way we do could be taken either to mean at all or in a human fashion. Right, right, right. Uh, it it is an interesting sort of. Uh, 
uh, uh, so, some may call it a, a an anti-Vulcan attitude in Kirk, where uh, Spock is only good if he starts to display human emotions. Uh, that people have noted that um, throughout the mm -hmm. original series was uh, mm. Kirk and especially McCoy, uh, the the Vulcan uh, de des uh, desire not to show emotion is a flaw from uh, from their human point of view, as opposed to just granting them that this is the way they want to be. Um, yeah, well, it does. And it's understandable, even though you could look at that and say, ooh, that's culturalist or speciesist or something. Yeah. Um, it's also when Spock becomes most relatable yeah. to the mm -hmm. audience. Right, right. And I think that's the balance of it is because uh, especially because Spock is half human. I mean, here he's he's some percentage human. Uh, we don't yeah. know yet, but <laughs> but eventually we realize he's half human, and that's a a balance that the character ends up seeking in himself, um, which we will discuss a little more in detail. I think next week when we discuss Star Trek: The Motion Picture, that would be an interesting yeah. uh, element. Yes. Uh, and then and then that's it. That's how the the episode ends, and we move on to the rest of the series uh, history yep. as as we know it. I, I have just one final comment on on this is the second pilot because they thought the first pilot was too cerebral. Yeah. But the first pilot was basically you go on a planet and aliens offer you a fantasy life. Right. And mm -hmm. that's cerebral compared to all this man god compassion stuff. <laughs> this is way more cerebral. But there's more fighting in this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kirk, you know, cracks Gary Mitchell one in the face. Uh, um, yes, uh, that's that's the, the I mean, who can account for TV execs? Yeah. So uh, is there any any other notes uh, you have, uh, Father Corey, on nope. uh, this episode? Uh, Jimmy? Anything else? Nope. Okay, so uh, that's it from us then. So, what do you think? What do you think of this, you know, second original series pilot where no man has gone before? Well, we want to hear from you. So, let us know by visiting sqpn.com/trek and finding the link to this episode and putting a comment there, or going to our Facebook page, the SQPN Facebook page. Leave us some feedback there, or send us an email to trek at sqpn.com. Uh, folks have said, hey, I don't have a Facebook page. How can I you know, re respond to you? Email is perfectly fine. We'll read emails uh, on future podcasts. Uh, you can also, if you have Twitter, you could respond on Twitter as well. Uh, so or, or if you're watching on YouTube, you can use the comment box on YouTube. Exactly. Yep. Any of those, there's lots of ways to respond to us. So uh, if, you, if, if, you've, if for whatever reason you don't have a Facebook, that's fine. Uh, please go to iTunes and Google Play and other places, Stitcher and TuneIn. Leave us reviews. Give us, you know, the uh, the the five star review if you can. Uh, recommend us to other your friends who are Star Trek mm -hmm. fans. We're trying to grow an audience here, and the only way we can do that is actually through your help. You know, you are our greatest advocates. Your recommendation makes the difference and gets gets more people out there. Uh, so, uh, with that said, we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing, as I said, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, until then. Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. The Star Trek. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Almost said the motion picture. <laughs> Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, my love has wings, slender feathered things with grace in upward swept curve and tapered tip. Now, if that ain't the greatest love sonnet of all time, I don't know what is. This is Don Bettinelli again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. 
and that you'll help us keep producing the podcasts you love. Thank you for your generosity. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give.